New Testament together. Such a joy just to see the various themes that the Holy Spirit has laid out for us. And there on the topic of giving, you notice there in 2 Corinthians 9 that giving is to be cheerful, it's to be a joyful giving, a sacrificial giving, a purposeful giving. Uh, tithing is not a New Testament concept. Tithing was an Old Testament concept. It was more of a tax imposed on the Israelites, the people of God. And in reality, they gave about 30% of their income altogether. Uh, it was given to the temple work. But in the New Testament, we don't tithe, properly speaking. We give sacrificially. We give offerings and gifts to the church uh, in hopes that the church would use it to pay its leaders and to help the needy and the poor and spread the gospel and so on. And uh, you'll notice in that passage, that's one that's abused badly by false teachers, that God, if you, if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly and so on. And the false teachers abuse that, saying that if you give, God's going to make you rich and give you a happy life, and that's obviously not promised in the Bible. Uh, what is promised is that, that if you give and use your money for the glory of God, He'll provide for your needs and provide for you to continue giving for His glory. That's the promise. And also, if you notice, of all of the moral teachings in Scripture, they're always rooted in the Gospel. The imperative is rooted in the indicative. We are commanded to do things that are rooted in what God has already done for us. You go back to chapter 8, Paul says, Christ is the one who gave. He gave Himself. Though He was rich, yet for our sake He became poor, so that we might become rich in Him. He gave for us, and so we give for Him and His glory. Everything's rooted in that glorious Gospel. Well, as we come again to the Word, we'll dig into the Scripture, but first let's pray and ask for God's grace and blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for Your glory being put on display in so many ways. You put Your glory on display in creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The expanse declares the work of Your hands. Day by day they pour forth speech. Night by night they reveal knowledge. The words have gone to the end of the world. The whole universe can see Your glory. Every person can see Your glory. Because the world is a theater for Your glory. Your divine nature, Your invisible attributes, Your glorious power, all of these things are displayed in creation. You display Your glory in the work of grace that You accomplish in our hearts. When our lives are transformed radically by the Gospel, we see Your glory and Your power put on display. We see Your glory... In the Scripture, we see Your glory in Christ. You have displayed Your glory to us, and we want more of that glory. We're mindful of Paul, who on the road to Damascus hated Christ, despised Christ, sought to eliminate the followers of Christ, and then just one glimpse of the glory of Jesus, and he spent the rest of his life giving his life for that Savior. Anyone who's seen His glory savingly would feel the same way. So Lord, we love You. We desire to see that glory this morning in the Scripture. We desire that You would open the eyes of our hearts so that with the eye of faith we may behold You more and more. And if there are any here this morning who are unconverted, unbelieving, any here who maybe they even would profess to believe, but their hearts are not warm to Christ, their affections are not aroused to love Him, their lives testify against them, my prayer, Lord, is that You would open their blinded eyes to see the beauty of Jesus so they would run after Him by faith and find life in Him. Lord, may it be. As we open Your Word, we pray again for grace and illumination and wisdom and understanding. Help us to know what this passage says. Help us to understand what it means by what it says. And help us 
to apply its truths to our lives for your glory. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, we're going to be yet again turning to the book of 1 John. So you can turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And this morning we are going to return to the passage that we've been looking at for two weeks now. And that is verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. For a message that I've entitled, Test the Spirits, Part 3. You'll notice most of my messages end up in parts. That's just the way it works. But this is Part 3 of Test the Spirits. We know that the Apostle John wrote this book, and we know to whom he wrote it. He wrote it to the churches of Asia Minor. Uh, You can get a list of those churches if you read the first three chapters of Revelation. It's probably the same churches that he wrote this letter to. And we also know why he wrote this letter. He wrote it because of a group of false teachers uh, known as the Gnostic heretics were there in Asia Minor seeking to deceive the Christian faithful there. We talked about the two different sects of these false teachers last week, uh, the Docetists and the followers of Serenthus. They denied the true nature of Christ. They denied the necessity of obedience. They denied the centrality of love. And in a word, they presented their own counterfeit version of the Christian faith. Their own counterfeit version of Christianity. They were perpetuating satanic deceptions. And John took this threat so seriously that he wrote this letter to them as a series of tests by which you can distinguish between true teachers and false teachers. True Christianity and false Christianity. A true believer and a false believer. The three tests, as you already know, are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. True Christians believe the truth doctrinally They obey the truth morally, and they love in truth socially or relationally. Those are the marks of a true Christian. And the passage before us this morning once again highlights the doctrinal test. In these six verses, John warns us against false doctrine. Let me read the verses to you one more time. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming And now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Verse 6 really summarizes the passage for us. This is about discernment. It's about discernment. It's about testing the spirits to distinguish between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. To see whether or not 
They are from God. It is a passage about discernment. That's a topic important for many in the church today because unfortunately many Christians are very gullible. They don't exercise discernment. As Christians, we're quick to believe anything we hear. That's what our culture is like today. Anything you read on social media, anything you hear on the news, it's got to be true. Hey, Google's always right. Isn't that what we believe? But we know that's not the case. We have to be discerning. I told you last time, God has revealed Himself in many, many ways. Many, many ways. But one way in particular in which God has revealed Himself is through apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers who declare and explain His revelation to His church. God has sent men into the world to declare His Word, His truth. The issue is that not everyone who claims to be from God really is. Not everyone who claims to be a true teacher is a true teacher. There are many false teachers who seek to lead the faithful astray with their carefully crafted deceptions. And we must be on the lookout for such false teachers. In other words, it is our responsibility to exercise discernment. It is our responsibility to differentiate between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, between God's Word and Satan's lies, between heavenly reality and hellish hoax. We must be discerning. The question is, how do we do that? How do we distinguish between true teachers and false teachers? What is the standard by which we measure such teachers? John answers that in these six verses by providing us two criteria, two tests by which we can discern between truth and error. And as you know, in this passage we see the command to test the spirits, we see the cause for testing the spirits, and then we see the criteria for testing the spirits. The command, the cause, and the criteria. We've already seen the command back in verse 1. There John says... Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, don't be gullible, don't be foolish, don't be bewitched, don't be seduced, exercise discernment. Don't believe everything you hear. Be wise, be prudent, be discerning. Examine the spirits carefully to see whether or not they are from God. You see, every person who comes to you is teaching from one of two sources. There are one of two spirits behind every message. Either the Spirit of Truth, referred to in verse 2 as the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Error, referred to as the Spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3. The Spirit of God, obviously, is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, whereas the Spirit of Error is a reference to Satan and his demonic host. Satan and other demon spirits who propagate false teaching, satanic deceptions. One of these two spirits are behind every teacher's message. Every teacher's message. John explicitly mentioned the Holy Spirit for the first time in chapter 3, verse 24. And having made mention of the Spirit that comes from God... 
He's quick to point out that there are other spirits in the world, also spirits that are not from God. Satanic spirits, demonic spirits who deceive with their deluding influence. And so what we have to do then is we have to test the doctrinal content of all teachers to see whether or not they're teaching from the Holy Spirit or demon spirit. To see whether or not it's from God or from Satan. So that's the command. We must test the spirits. But secondly, we also saw the cause, the cause for testing the spirits. Look at verse 1 again. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because, here it goes, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Why do we need to test the spirits? Why do we need to be discerning? Because there are false teachers in the world who counterfeit God's truth. Counterfeit God's truth. So we must be discerning. But again, how do we do that? How do we distinguish between the true and the false? Well, John helps us. Two criteria, two tests that he provides by which we can make that distinction. The two tests are the Christological test, the Christological test, and the Bibliological test. Christological, Bibliological. Again, those are big systematic theology words. The word Christology just refers to the doctrine of Christ. The word Bibliology refers to the doctrine of the Bible. So the first test is the Christological test. In other words, what do they say about Christ? What is their doctrine of Christ? What do they teach about Jesus? What is their Christology? We saw that in verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. How do you know if someone's a true teacher? How do you know if someone's really from God? They confess the truth about Jesus. They agree with what God says concerning His Son. They confess Jesus as coming in the flesh. Which is to say, they confess the incarnation and the humanity of Christ. They believe that Jesus is the God-man. And it's the true Jesus that they confess. It's not just a false Jesus, just any Jesus. You know, if someone came to you and said, hey, I saw Jamie today. And you said, oh really? What did he look like? Six foot four, black guy, tall. I'm not talking about me, right? Someone comes and says, hey, I met Jesus. He's Michael the archangel. Run away. They're liars. That's not the same Jesus. And so it's not Michael the archangel who came in the flesh like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. It's not the spirit brother of Satan who came in the flesh, like the Mormon or LDS church says. It's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity who came in the flesh, and true teachers acknowledge that reality. If someone does not acknowledge the truth about Christ, you know for certain that person is not from God. That person is a false teacher. True teachers acknowledge His full deity, His true humanity, and as we saw last week, also His saving sufficiency. True deity, full humanity, and saving sufficiency. The flip side is verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. True teachers acknowledge the truth about Christ. False teachers distort 
the truth about Christ. They preach a substitute Christ. A replacement Christ. An anti-Christ. That's what the word anti means. The word anti-Christos. Anti means either against or a substitute in the place of. This is an anti-Christ. Any Christ that isn't the biblical Christ is the anti-Christ. And anyone who propagates that Christ is also himself an anti-Christ. That's what John says in verse 3. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. The same spirit that influences the final Antichrist is the same spirit that influences all Antichrists, plural. And that, of course, is Satan. John ended verse 3 by saying, Of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. There's a final Antichrist coming, John says, you've heard that, but there's already many in the world. The spirit of Antichrist, Satan, who influences that Antichrist, is already actively in the world influencing all Antichrist, all Christ opposers, and we must be on the lookout for them. I've told you before, there are two kinds of people in the world. John's very clear on that. The children of God, the children of Satan. Those who walk in the light, those who walk in the darkness... Christians and anti-Christ, there's no neutrality. If you're not a Christian, you're against Christ, and you're an anti-Christ. And we must refuse to be duped by the lies of these Christological heretics. So the hallmark of a false teacher, then, is an erroneous Christology. He distorts the truth about Christ. That's where you begin. That's test number one. What do they say about Jesus? But John gives us one more test here, one more criterion. That's going to be the focus of our attention this morning, and that is the bibliological test. The bibliological test. Again, don't be scared by the word. The word bibliology is a technical term, systematic theology word, and it just refers to the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine is two words. It's the Greek word biblios and logos. Words about the Bible. What does the Bible teach about the Bible? Is basically what bibliology is. So a true teacher has a good bibliology. He has a, the right view of Scripture. And that will become clear in verses 4 through 6. And in verses 4 through 6, you're going to notice that each verse begins with a different pronoun. Each verse begins with a different pronoun, all of which refer to a different group of people. You can see this in your own Bible, the first word of each verse. Verse 4, you. Verse 5, they. Verse 6, we. You, they, we. So first of all, you. Look at verse 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. You are from God. Who's the you? Well, it's John's readers, and by way of extension, all Christians throughout all time. All Christians, even us this morning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. As Christians, we are from God. We belong to God. We have been born of God. We are adopted by God. We are in the family of God. We're the children of God. <clears throat> As John said back in chapter 3, verse 9, we possess the seed of God, the nature of God, the Spirit of God, and therefore we are from God. We are His. We are His. We are from 
him. And again, John addresses them with another title of endearment here, a term of love. He refers to them as his little children. They were God's children, but they were also John's children. They were the flock that he loved dearly from the bottom of his heart. Now out of his love for them, he wants to encourage them. And so by way of encouragement, he adds, You have overcome them. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. Who in the world is them? The false teachers. The many false prophets who've gone out into the world influenced by demonic spirits, propagating doctrines of demons. John says, as believers, you have overcome them. The word overcome, very interesting word, the Greek word nikao, comes from the root word nike, spelled just like Nike, N-I-K-E. It's the word nike, it's where we get Nike from. That's what it means. It means victory, conqueror, prevail. John is saying you have victory over the false teachers. You prevail over them. Every Christian is a conqueror. It would be fitting if we all had a little Nike swish there on our heads because we're all nikao, we're all conquerors in Christ. That is to say, we have overcome their deception. We have overcome their deluding influence. We've overcome their destructive fate. We've overcome them by rejecting their heretical notions and their erroneous Christology. We have not, nor will we, fall prey to their lies. True Christians will not give in to deception. Why is that? Why? Well, the last half of verse 4 answers, Because greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. Who's the one in us? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of truth. Who's the one in the world? Satan and his demonic host. John is saying the Holy Spirit is greater than demonic spirits. He's greater than the demons. The Holy Spirit is the one referred to back in chapter 2 as the anointing we have from God who teaches us all things. God the Father, through God the Son, has given us the gift of God the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, and He teaches us divine truth. That's what Jesus told the apostles. In John 16, He said, The Spirit of truth, when He comes, He'll lead you into all the truth. That was a promise that was uniquely for the apostles because He led them into the truth to write the Scripture, but it even applies to us in a lesser way because He leads us into the truth as we study the Scripture and as He illumines our minds and opens our eyes to see the truth. John says the Spirit of God is greater than the demonic spirit. The Holy Spirit keeps us from damning deception. The Holy Spirit prevents us from falling prey to error. He is our built-in safe check against error. He is what we could call the internal lie detector. He teaches us the truth. And because of that, true believers who really do have the gift of the Holy Spirit, they will never depart from the the Gospel. Christians can be confused on many secondary issues. Christians can disagree on many secondary issues, such as modes of baptism and church leadership and so on. 
But no true Christian will ever be so confused on the gospel and the deity and humanity and person of Christ that he'll leave that truth. No Christian. Anyone who leaves the truth of the gospel does so because he was never saved to begin with. You ever met a person who says, I used to be a Christian, now I'm an atheist? Used to be a Christian. You know what I tell them? No, you didn't. You were never a Christian. If you were a Christian, you'd still be a Christian. Becoming a Christian isn't just making an intellectual decision. In fact, becoming a Christian is not even something you do by your will. Becoming a Christian is a supernatural work of a sovereign God whereby He changes your heart and provides you with His Spirit and gives you new life. You think that's going to change a person? Absolutely. That's why in chapter 2, verse 19, John said, They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they all went out to show that they were all not of us. They left the faith because they never belonged to it. The Holy Spirit keeps us. Of course, this doesn't nullify our responsibility. This doesn't mean you don't have any part to play or anything to do. This isn't let go, let God. That's not a biblical idea at all. You have responsibility as a Christian. You have to exercise discernment. You have to test the spirits. You need to read the Scripture. This isn't going to happen by osmosis. You're not going to sit on the couch and be zapped with heavenly knowledge. You've got to labor to study the Word. But even though God keeps us, Scripture teaches that, Yet He does it through our Spirit-empowered efforts and our Spirit-illuminated discernment. The Holy Spirit keeps us through our Spirit-empowered efforts and our Spirit-illuminated discernment. That's why John MacArthur says, Believers need to be aware and alert to false teaching, but not afraid. We need to be aware of it, because it's out there. But we don't have to fear it because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Because the Spirit will keep you. That's why MacArthur goes on and says, protection against error or victory over it are guaranteed by sound doctrine and the indwelling Holy Spirit who illumines the mind. In other words, true believers can never be totally seduced, finally deceived, to the point of apostasy, to the point of total defection. True Christians will never leave because the Spirit keeps them. We overcome the false teachers. We're victory, victors over them. Back in chapter 2, verse 14, John said, we've overcome the evil one because the Word of God abides in us and we are strong. So our victory is connected to our understanding of divine truth. The best way to avoid deception is to be solidly grounded and rooted in biblical truth. Chapter 5, verse 4, John says this, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We, through faith in Christ, have overcome Satan, have overcome the world, and have overcome false teachers. We have overcome the spirit of Antichrist and his deception. In John 16.33, Jesus looks at His pitiful, sad, distraught disciples and He tells them, In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. 
we are victorious because He was victorious. He overcame the world through His death, burial, and resurrection. He overcame the world by crushing the head of the serpent, as that ancient promise in Genesis 3.15 said He would. And now we share in that victory, so much so that Paul told the church at Rome, soon Christ will crush Satan under your feet. We share in that victory. It's an already not yet kind of thing, right? Are you free from sin completely? No. You woke up this morning and found that out pretty quickly, right? Kicking the cage, telling the dogs to shut up, throwing stuff at the kids and getting them ready for church. and You found out very quickly you're not free from sin. Do you perfectly know truth? Is there anyone in here who thinks that we're not probably wrong somewhere in our understanding of theology? Even your pastor admits, I've probably got a blind spot somewhere. But we are victorious. It's an already, not yet. We share in His victory, but the fullness of that victory awaits the eternal state when we reign with Him. But we have a real victory now. Revelation 12.11 says we overcome Satan because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of our testimony. We overcome in Christ. Daniel Aiken says, we have a champion, a victor, a source of power that all of these enemies from hell cannot overcome. And that champion now lives within us by His Spirit and keeps us from deception so that we overcome. However, that's not the case for unbelievers. Unbelievers do not overcome deception. Unbelievers are deceived. And many of them profess to be the people of God. Just turn on TBN. Just turn on the Christian local Christian channel and you'll find out that a majority of the people on TV are espousing heresy. The biggest megachurches in the world are filled with ear-tickling preachers who are essentially proclaiming demonic discourses and satanic sermons that tickle the ears of their hearers. Unbelievers are deceived. That brings us to verse 5. Verse 5 brings us to the second pronoun, they. They. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. They are from the world. Again, that refers to the false teachers. The false teachers, influenced by Satan, who have gone out into the world, propagating deception. The word world, by the way, it's the Greek word cosmos, where we get our word cosmos from. It refers to an ordered system. An ordered system. And in this case, it refers to the system of evil in the world, ruled by sin and Satan. 1 John 5.19 says that we belong to God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This evil system within the world is under the influence of sin and Satan. And false teachers belong to that system. They are from the world. They're of their father the devil. They possess his nature. They propagate his lies. They're held captive by him to do his will. He's the Spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 says. And therefore, John adds, they speak as from the world. They speak the lies of the world. They speak deception. They speak after their Father, who is the Father of lies, according to John chapter 8. 
They speak worldly, godless, satanic ideologies, and the world eats it up. The world loves it. That's why he goes on and says, and the world listens to them. That is to say, the evil people of the world, unbelievers, who belong to this system, they love the lies of false teachers. They hate the truth of God. They love the lies of the world. You'll notice that an unbeliever's worldview, if you can press him on it, it's such absurdity. It's such foolishness. In one, bre- in one breath, the unbeliever will say something like this, black lives matter. In the next breath, he'll say, by the way, we're all cosmic pond scum that evolved, no life matters. That's inconsistent. That is the epitome of an unbelieving worldview. It is foolish. Why? Why do they embrace such stupidity? Why do they do that? You ever thought that? Why do these people just not get it? It's because... Because they are stupid. (laughs) They are fools, and they're fools because God has left them to their deception. But here's the key. The only reason we're not stupid is the grace of God. That's the only reason. If God's grace was removed from you, you would be as foolish as them. You can never, as a Christian, you can never slap yourself on the back and say, man, I made a good decision. I am so much smarter than those idiot unbelievers. Because the only reason you believe is the Spirit of God who is greater than the demonic spirits is in you enabling you to believe. But the unbelievers hate God's truth. They gladly buy into satanic deception. The unbelievers are deceived because they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. They don't possess Him who is greater than the one in the world. They're left to their own devices, to their own wicked hearts, their own depravity. That's why in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul said this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That is to say, a natural man, a spiritually dead man, an unregenerate, unbelieving, unconverted person who does not have the Spirit of God in spiritual life, he cannot understand spiritual truth. Only spiritual people can grasp spiritual truth. And that is not to say that they can't logically get what we're saying. They can understand that we're saying Jesus is God in the flesh. They can understand that we're saying Jesus died on the cross. They can understand those things logically, but they can't understand it savingly so as to love the truth. They can't understand it so as to love it and embrace it and believe it. It is foolishness to them. And therefore, they gladly give in to satanic deceptions because they don't want the truth. They're like people with their ears plugged, running away from the truth, right into lies, right into error, right into deception. But believers, on the other hand, we have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16 says. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ, we have the Word of Christ, and therefore we have the mind of Christ. That's why we're not led astray. That's why we hold fast to the truth, because we have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, it's just a matter of time before you defect and you give in to deception. If you're doing this all as a work of your own flesh, your Christianity is nothing but a mere quick decision of your own mind, it's just a matter of time before you leave the truth. But those who have the Holy Spirit, 
will never leave the truth. Because the Spirit who began the good work of grace in us is the very one who completes that work and brings it to completion and perfection. So we'll never be deceived if we're true believers. The Spirit keeps us. But the unbelievers, they are deceived. But in verse 6, we see the last pronoun. The last pronoun, we. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. We are from God. Who's the we? It's natural in this case to think, oh, of course it's us. But we've got to understand biblical context. Who's the we here? I think it's the same we referred to in chapter 1. Go to chapter 1 for a minute. 1 John chapter 1. And I'll start reading for us in verse 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1. John says, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, notice that pronoun there, the word we, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In other words, they saw the incarnate Christ. They saw and heard and touched the God-man, the Lord Jesus. John says, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched. Now who is the we that saw and heard and touched Christ? It isn't us. No one on earth today has seen the visible, physical Christ. So who's the we? It's a reference to John in the other apostles. This is an apostolic we. It's an apostolic we. Go back to chapter 4 now. I'm convinced that John is using the word we in the same way here. He's referring to him and the other apostles. Here's what John is saying. We, the apostles, are from God. We are from God. The apostles were true teachers sent from God teaching by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Teaching divine truth from the Spirit of truth. The apostles, by the way, sometimes we conflate the word disciple and apostle. They're not the same word. Disciple is a follower of Jesus. Every Christian is a disciple. The word apostle, the word apostolos, it means a messenger. The apostles were divinely sent authoritative messengers who saw the risen Christ who were chosen by Him to bear witness to that resurrection and to perform miracles that validated their message. That's why 2 Corinthians 12 refers to the signs of a true apostle. They could heal the sick, they could raise the dead, so on and so forth. These were men chosen by God, 12 of them originally. Judas replaced Matthias later. Paul was added as one untimely born And with the death of the Apostle John at the end of the first century, the office of Apostle has ceased. It is no more. There are no Apostles today. There are no Apostles today. But they minister to us today, how? Through their writings. They were the ones charged by Jesus to write the New Testament. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the Apostles. What does that mean? What's the foundation they laid? Their writings. The New Testament. 
The apostles are only the foundation of the church confessionally, doctrinally, in as far as they recorded the words of Christ in the New Testament and laid it down for us. That's why Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Because they received that doctrine directly from Jesus Christ and recorded it for us in the New Testament. This is the apostolic and divinely inspired Word. So John goes on to say, He who knows God listens to us. I don't think you can say that, can you? We can measure if someone's a Christian because he listens to everything I say? No. The apostles could say that. Because they were the bearers of divine truth. John is saying anyone who refuses to listen to the apostolic word is not a Christian. But true believers, those who know God, those who are truly saved and in a saving relationship with God, they listen to the apostles. They listen to the apostolic word. They listen to the New Testament. The Bible. On the flip side, John adds, he who is not from God does not listen to us. Anyone who refuses to listen to the apostolic word in the New Testament is a false teacher. Anyone who refuses to embrace the truth recorded in the New Testament is a false teacher. This is the bibliological test. It's the biblical test. The Bible is the standard. The Bible is the Word of God. John is saying true teachers listen to the writers of Scripture. The true teachers embrace the Bible. Biblical and apostolic truth. A true teacher then will embrace the inspiration and the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. And anyone who does not, write it down, they're a false teacher. In fact, anyone who denies the Bible as the Word of God, it's just inevitable. They're going to be wrong in a million other places. Because if you reject the source of truth, you end up with error every single time. You'll run into people who say they're Christians. And then you'll ask them, what do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? They'll say, oh, not really. I mean, parts of it maybe. And then guess what? They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They deny salvation by faith alone in Christ. They deny the Gospel because they deny the very source of revelation that contains that truth. So unbelievers reject, false teachers reject apostolic truth. And the world listens to them. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I quoted a verse from there earlier, but I want to look a little bit more closely at a passage here. Verses 12 through 16. In this chapter, Paul's making the point that his ministry is predicated not on the words of human wisdom, but upon the words and power of God. His ministry is one that is dependent upon the power and word of God. And what he says in verses 12 through 16, I think, are relevant to what John is telling us in 1 John 4. So 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12, Paul writes, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, that is the spirit of error, the spirit of the Antichrist, but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, 
but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This is another apostolic we. Paul and the other apostles, they received direct revelation from God. They recorded it for us in the New Testament. And it's not even just the, the thoughts. He says it's combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. It's not merely the thoughts that are inspired. This even goes down to the very words. This is what we call plenary verbal inspiration. Every word inspired. That's why I'm committed to preaching every word. If every word's inspired, every word should be preached. Every verse demands attention to detail. But Paul says every word. We're the apostles. We receive truth. Spiritual thoughts. Spiritual words. Verse 14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They don't. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. A person who is devoid of the Holy Spirit can embrace the truth. Then in verse 16 he says, But we have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and therefore the mind of God, and therefore we embrace the truth of God. But unbelievers, being devoid of the Spirit, hate the truth and reject the truth. That is why your unbelieving friends on Facebook can't get the truth. Because they're dead in their sin. The only thing that will awaken them to the truth is a supernatural work of God's grace. How does that grace unleash itself? Through the preaching of the Gospel. So what do you do to your unbelieving friend who just can't get it? You keep preaching the truth and praying for God to open their heart and leave the results to the Lord. And the Word of God will do its work. But unbelievers hate the truth. That's why in Romans 3, Paul says, None seek for God. No one understands. No one understands the truth so as to savingly seek for the God of that truth. Only God can enable the sinner to do that. Back to chapter 4 now. The world, being devoid of the Spirit, being devoid of spiritual life, they listen to the false teachers who are from the world. The true believers possessing the Holy Spirit, they listen to those who teach from God. They listen to the Scriptures. They listen to the apostolic Word. We could even call this the apostolic test. The apostolic test. True believers or true teachers believe the doctrines of the apostles. They get their doctrine, their Christology, not from the world, not from worldly philosophers, but from God in the Scripture. So any teacher whose doctrine lines up with the apostolic word in the New Testament and by way of extension the Old Testament, that's a true teacher. The Bible is the standard. The Scripture is the standard. So John says, By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That's how you know if someone is teaching from the Holy Spirit or demonic spirits. What do they say about Christ? And what do they say about the Scripture? Anyone who rejects the book inspired by the Holy Spirit isn't teaching from the Holy Spirit. That's simple, isn't it? Very simple. If the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, then anyone who denies the truth about Christ and doesn't glorify Him is not a true teacher. And if the Holy Spirit inspired the Word, then anyone who refuses to listen to the apostolic Word is not teaching from the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. So you have then a Christological test and a Bibliological test. 
Now, what about those three cults that we considered last time? The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Roman Catholics. Do they have a good view of Scripture? Do they pass the bibliological test? Do they listen to John and the other apostles? You see, the right view of the Bible is what we call sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. It's a Latin phrase. It means Scripture alone. Scripture alone is our standard for faith and practice. Scripture alone is the standard for what we believe and how we live. Do the cults hold to that? Let's find out. What about the witnesses? Do the Jehovah's Witnesses listen to the apostolic word? The answer is no. No, because they have the Watchtower Society. That's their prophet of God on the earth. They're the ones that tell the Jehovah's Witnesses what to believe. They're the ones that are authoritative in their declaration of doctrine. And then they also have their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. And it's a perversion, a corruption. I don't have time to give examples, but it corrupts the Word of God. So they don't listen to the apostles. They listen to the New World Translation. They listen to the Watchtower Society. It's no wonder they have a bad Christology. They have a bad view of Revelation. They reject the ultimate authority of Scripture, and therefore they are from the world. They're false teachers to be rejected. What about the Mormons? Do the Mormons pass the test? Do the Mormons pass the bibliological test? The answer is no. Because although the Mormons claim to believe in the King James Version of the Bible, they also have the Book of Mormon, written by that heretic Joseph Smith. We considered some of his errors last week from his own mouth. They have the Book of Mormon. It's equally authoritative with the Bible. They call it another testament of Jesus Christ. And then there's the Doctrine and Covenants, another book compiled of a bunch of sayings from Joseph Smith. And then there's the Pearl of Great Price from some of the other leaders in early Mormon history. All of these are considered to be authoritative scriptures. And of course, they still have prophets today who receive direct revelation and speak for God. It's no wonder that they fail the Christological test because they fail the Bibliological test. This is a source. You miss the biblical truth, you reject the source of truth, it's just inevitable you're going to reject Christological truth. And finally, what about the Roman Catholics? Do they pass the Bibliological test? And again, the answer is no. The answer is no. Because even though they claim to believe the Bible, they also add papal authority and ecclesiastical tradition, church tradition, as being authoritatively binding. The Pope tells them what to believe. The Pope is the one who interprets the Scripture. You can read this in their own catechism and in the Council of Trent. He's the one that tells them what the Word of God means. And church historical councils throughout history are binding on what the church is to believe. So it's no wonder they end up with doctrines like purgatory. It's no wonder they end up rejecting the true work of Christ and the sufficiency of the work of Christ and the true gospel of Christ because they reject the source of that truth, which is the Scripture. And so they, like the other two cults, fail the bibliological test. All three of them do, and therefore they teach from the spirit of error. So we have a command to test. We have a cause for testing, and we have criteria for testing. The two tests are the Christological test and the Bibliological test. True teachers confess the truth about Christ, His full deity, true humanity, and saving sufficiency, and they believe in the apostolic word, the Scripture. Anyone who fails to pass those two tests 
is a false teacher regardless of what they say. Regardless of how sincere they seem. Because if they're sincere, they're sincerely wrong. These people teach from error. So do you want to know a true teacher from a false teacher? Do you want to know if you're a true believer or a false believer? What do you say about Christ? What do you say about Christ? Do you believe in the biblical Jesus? The Jesus who's fully God and fully man? The second person of the Trinity? God the Son? Do you believe in the apostolic word? Do you listen to the apostolic word? Do you listen to the scripture? Or do you listen to the false teachers of the world and the philosophies of the world and the errors of the world? Do you treat the Bible like a bag of Chex Mix? With a big buffet, I just pick and choose what I want. I like this part about Jesus loves me, but I don't like this part about homosexuality as sin and condemned by the wrath of God. I like the idea of God as love, but I don't like the idea of there being two genders. Do you treat the Bible that way? Just cut it up? Take the pieces you want? Or do you submit yourself to the divine authority of the whole counsel of God? That's what a true Christian does. True believers believe the truth about Christ and they listen to the apostolic and divinely inspired word in the Bible. So brothers and sisters, let us be on the lookout for false teachers. May we exercise discernment. May we test the spirits. And may we hold fast to the truth about Christ and believe in the apostolic word. And if you do that, if you do that, by His grace you will be kept from deception and stand firm in the truth for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power and its clarity and its authority. Martin Luther said, I did nothing. The Word did it all. We know how true that is. The Word of God does its work in those who believe. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. You sanctify us by the truth. Your Word is truth. And I pray this morning You are continuing to sanctify Your people through the hearing of Your Word. We know the danger that is real in the world of false teachers. There are many dangers. We know COVID is a danger. We know other diseases are dangerous. We know that there's the danger of robbers and thieves and murderers. There's the danger of corrupt police officers. There's many dangers in the world. But we know that the most dangerous thing in the world is that which would damn our souls. Spiritual, theological deception. And I pray that we would be on the lookout for that even more than we would be on the lookout for a, an infectious disease. I pray that we would have our senses trained by the Scripture to be discerning. And we're thankful that Your Word gives us the test. We know any true teacher holds to the truth about Christ and has a good view of the Scripture, listens to the apostles. And so, Lord, that's, those are the teachers we're looking for. And I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not believe in the true Christ, who rejects the authority of the Word of God, I pray that You would save them today. That You would grant them true faith and true repentance. That they would leave their pride and come to a humble state in which they submit themselves to the Word of God. Thank You, Lord, for Your truth. We pray these things for Your glory. Amen.